Good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Thanks for uh, braving the Arctic winds and uh, and joining us. Um, I want to let you know next week we will not be here. We will be over at Edwardsville High School at 10 a.m. It is our Trailhead United service, our yearly celebration where we get everybody together in one space for one celebration of God's grace uh, in this local church. And so that is 10 a.m. next week. So uh, if you forget, I have to caution you, if you show up here for the 1045, uh, you can still get over there, but you're going to miss a good portion of the celebration, okay? So, so uh, set a reminder, ask Siri to remind you next Sunday morning uh, or maybe next Saturday night uh, that, that uh, we're meeting at 10 a.m. over at Edwardsville High School. All right, beginning of 2020, over the first three weeks of 2020, we've been spending um, these first three Sundays progressively looking at our mission statement. We try to cycle around and spend some time with this every year, walking in Christ as a community on mission. Um, And uh, there are three components that we've looked at over the the course of these three weeks, right? In Christ, that uh, we are a community founded on the person and work of Jesus. We are not that is our primary identity, that is our primary foundation, that is primarily what makes us who we are, the person and the work of Jesus uh, to redeem and restore, right, to reestablish the glory of God uh, in creation through the redemption of humanity. Uh, last week we looked at the fact that we are uh, walking in Christ as community, right, that God has called us in our diversity to find a radical new unity, that we're not going to find a unity around our commonalities, our common histories, our common experiences, our common convictions, our common backgrounds, but instead we will be a diverse group of people uh, drawn together around a common center, a, a faith, right? A, a common grace, that we have a common Savior, and that the, the magnetic pull of that center will be greater than, than any of the secondary issues that would seek to drive us apart. But of course, that will require us not just to come together around that grace, but to drink deeply of that grace, to experience that grace and grow in humility and, and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love and, and um, uh, seeking to, being ear to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, right? We looked at that last week. And um, this week we're looking at the final phrase on mission. Um, and of course, all three phrases are linked together by that, the the first word, walking, um, which I leave intentionally because this is an ongoing progressive journey for us. We have not arrived. We're not simply trying to protect what was given to us or, or go back to some great day in the past. We need to keep pushing forward. We need to keep walking. We, we need to keep stumbling forward in grace, right? Um, so that we are uh, experiencing more of what we have in Christ. So that we are pushing into a greater experience of shared community and shared grace. And so that we are discovering new uh, opportunities um, of the love of God in mission. I heard an illustration this week. I was, I was reading a book and uh, the illustration kind of grabbed me and I thought it was appropriate for this morning. Um, this guy had done the math and the calculations. If you're in, a, in an airplane leaving out of LAX and you're, you're trying to go to... Um, uh, to the JFK International Airport in New York. Um, Pretty easy flight, right? Um, But if the nose of your aircraft is misaligned by two to three degrees, I forget the exact whatever, 
uh, but, but a tiny misalignment at takeoff to the south. You're not going to end up at JFK International in New York. You're going to end up at Reagan International in Washington, D.C. A tiny, tiny deviation at takeoff can lead you 250 miles away from your destination. And the point of the illustration is pretty clear that small misalignments can take you to totally different destinations, right? If you're just, if you're just misaligned slightly at the start, you can end up in a place you never intended to go. And there is a, there is a lot of debate in, in certain circles of the church today about the mission of the church and it's about this very issue. It's about alignment and misalignment. It's, it's this, this tension that, that um, is it, is it and, and really what it boils down to, and this is a bit of an oversimplification, but what it boils down to is, is it evangelizing those who don't believe, like getting out there with the gospel and sharing the gospel so that unbelievers can become believers, or is it social justice? Is it actually bringing to bear the, the, the power of the gospel on, on systems of poverty? generational poverty, educational inequality, um, uh, suffering, right? Um, that, that, as James says, uh, we don't just show up and, and see somebody hungry and not fed and say, well, be well and be fed. Give them words of life. You have to actually back it up with actions of life, right? So is it, is it, is it words or is it action? Is it, is, it, is it sharing the gospel or is it intervening for the good of others. And, and really, on both sides, you've got this, this fear of mission drift, right? This idea of misalignment, right? That, that somehow, if we're misaligned with the gospel, if we don't get this right, we're going to end up in the wrong destination. I think the phrase that's more commonly used in these circles is this whole slippery slope idea, right? That, that if you just deviate a little bit too far to one side, you, you know, you're going to hit that slippery slope. And once you hit it, man, you're just gone right? You're gone. You're just going to slide the rest of the way down, and you're going to disappear, and, and it's going to be bad. And here's the thing. I absolutely agree that the mission of the church needs to be carefully defined. And I absolutely agree that we need to be very, very careful of the slippery slope. But here's my fear. I think we often condemn the slippery slope we see while we're sliding down the one we don't. There are slippery slopes everywhere. There are slippery slopes, not just the ones that, that you've identified as the enemy. There are the ones that you've identified as the friend. Um, mission drift. It's all around us. Mission drift. When we're talking about the mission of the church, this is how you end up with churches that are, that are holy huddles. Right? They spend all their time studying their Bible and getting together and, and praying, and, and they send their monies overseas um, to reach people very far away with the message of the gospel, but they don't know their neighbors. Like, not only do they not know their neighbors, they're afraid of them. They don't seek to reach out in love of God. They're actually kind of annoyed at their neighborhood or the people around them. And, and... This is how you end up with churches that are all about social activism that are getting involved in very, very specific issues of, of social evils and social suffering, but they stop preaching the gospel. They're all about engaging and fixing problems, but they stop proclaiming the redemptive work of Christ. This is how you end up with, with people who think they are so right while they're walking in a way that is obviously so wrong. Right? People, people that, that, man, theologically, 
they know their stuff. They, they know how to cross their T's and dot their I's. They, they know one theological distinction from another, but they're not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel like we talked about last week. They're not walking in humility, patience, gentleness, fighting to protect, uh, bearing with one another, fighting to protect and eager to protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All right? And this is how you end up with churches that are all about knowing the right things and being right about those things, but they're full of bitterness and toxic conflict. Mission drift. Mission drift. Tiny misalignments can take you to totally unexpected and unintended destinations. So right up front, I want to tell you what I think the mission of the church is. And for some of you, this, you, you, you may get a little nervous. Just stick with me, please right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Stick with me and let me say what I'm going to say, but I'm going to tell you up front. The mission of the church includes anywhere love leads you. The mission of the church includes anything that love would lead you to engage or to do, anywhere love would lead you to be. And mission drift occurs anytime that we resist the call of love, or we do the things of mission not motivated by love. So, Ephesians 4. Uh, it's a beautiful passage, and um, we're not going there. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, I, I would love to. Every, all the principles that I'm talking about are in Ephesians 4, and I was planning on unpacking it all, but the, it's such a dense and complicated passage, it would have turned into a mini-seminar in multiple hours. And so, um, as much as I would love to show you these principles from Ephesians 4, we are instead going to be jumping to some other passages. I'm going to put them on the screen behind me. First of all, I want us to take a look at what is often considered the central passage in the New Testament dealing with the mission of the church. It is called the Great Commission. It is found in Matthew 28, um, verse 18 through 20. And I'll put it on the screen behind me. I'm going to read it. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just for context, um, who's the them that Jesus is speaking to? These are the disciples that he's called to himself after the resurrection. So this is after Jesus became incarnate into this world right? Became human. God became man, was born into this world, lived the perfect human life, right? Full, completely fulfilling the law of Moses, completely walking in, in peace with his father, always obedient and, and in responsive love to God. Um, he then was betrayed by the world powers, uh, primarily because he threatened their power. He came in with a a whole new paradigm of love that undermined the religious power structures and the political power structures of the day. And as a result, because he was a threat to them and the structures that they had built to promote themselves and protect themselves, they killed him. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, used their betrayal to actually accomplish his greatest victory. Jesus, the man who lived the perfect life, died the sinner's death. He was handed over to death by sinners and then died for those sinners in their place. He became their substitute. He was the perfect Lamb of God sacrificed on behalf of those who needed redemption. It was, it was the perfect expression 
of self-giving love. And Jesus died for me in my place, taking the, the guilt and the weight of my sin. And when that price had been paid and he had died, he then came back. <laughs> because not only was he swallowed by death, he then defeated death. And coming out of death, he rose again to new life, um, offering anybody who would believe in him uh, complete forgiveness. The ability to be defined not by who you were or what you had done, but being defined by who He is and what He has accomplished. You can be covered not in your guilt and shame, but by the dignity and the beauty and the holiness and the righteousness of His resurrection character. Having been raised from the dead, He calls His disciples to Himself. And the first thing He says to them is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. That's an interesting statement for the Son of God to make. (laughs) Jesus was the Son of God. John chapter 1 tells us that He, in fact, created all that there is, right? He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, three who's one what? He is eternal God with eternal power. In what way could the eternal Son of God have all authority given to Him? Well, He just died and rose again, which means He not only has the power of God, He now also has the power of the Son of Man. He he can forgive sin. He has righteously and justly dealt with the cosmic problem of our guilt. And because He has, He now has the freedom to extend His righteousness as a gift to all those that would come to him in humble trust. All power in heaven and on earth has been entrusted to me. He was and always will be the eternal son of God, but he became the son of man when he was born into this world. And he became perfect man, fulfilling every obligation that mankind had failed. And when he rose again, he did it as perfect man. And he now sits on the throne of David as the, not only the creator of all things now, but the perfect steward over all things. He is the son of God. He is also the son of man. All of creation had been entrusted to mankind. Mankind was the steward of all creation. And now once again, we have a man who is the steward over all creation, who will guide it to all glory, giving birth to a new humanity, shaped into his image that will also be crowned with glory and honor. All authority on heaven and earth has been entrusted to me. So this incredible declaration of his power, of his dignity, of of this authority that's been entrusted to him will surely lead to some really profound statement, but it actually leads to a very simple command. The therefore, right? Because I have been entrusted with all of this authority, because I have this power, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age, of course, is when he returns and establishes his permanent kingdom. Because of that power, go and make disciples. The word disciple literally means pupil, right? A student, uh, a learner, um, a follower, We talk about Christ followers. That's not just a a kind of a modern, cute way of describing believers. It's actually a legitimate and accurate translation of this word, right? Disciple and follower, the same thing. Somebody who orders their lives after the steps of a teacher, a leader, a mentor, a king. 
We are Christ's followers. We, we imitate his life. We seek to be molded to his character. We want to walk into the freedom of what he has accomplished by following him in his victory. So the first persistent misunderstanding of the mission of the church that I want to push into, mission drift, right? Misunderstanding the mission of the church. The first persistent misunderstanding I want to push into is this, that discipleship is what the church does inside the church and mission is what it does outside. I'll often hear people use those terms, like, like what's your church's discipleship model? And what they mean by that is, is how do you teach believers to read their Bibles and to pray and to grow in holiness and uh, to be in community and to do all those things? And then often they'll say, so what are your mission programs? What they mean by that or what are the ways that you're reaching out into community to, to either evangelize or to do world mission or to engage suffering in your community? That is a completely artificial distinction. Something interesting as I was studying for this, I was looking at this, the word mission never occurs in the New Testament. Now, that's not to say that it's not a biblical concept, it absolutely is, but it's not a biblical word. We have to go to multiple passages to piece together and kind of understand what the mission of the church is. But you know what? The word discipleship, the root for that word is used almost 300 times in the New Testament. In fact, take a look at the Great Commission. The word mission is completely absent. What word do you see over and over and over? Disciple. The mission of the church is discipleship. You're like, yeah, but Steve, come on, man. Right there it says you're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which indicates evangelism. Right? Because, because the reason you have to baptize them is because they're a new follower of Christ, a new disciple right? Absolutely. You're 100% right. It also says to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, which we often think of as internal discipleship activity. Here's my point. It's all discipleship. It's all discipleship. We disciple those that are far from God to become believers, and we we, we disciple those that are followers of Christ to grow in their obedience, to grow in their transformation, to grow in their experience of the good things that God has won for them in Christ. It's all discipleship. And ironically, it's all evangelism. Evangelism comes from this Greek word, evangelion, the the proclamation of the good news, right? When we meet people who are not followers of Christ and we proclaim to them the resurrection of Christ, we proclaim to them the good news that God has solved their greatest problem, paid their greatest debt, given their greatest blessing if they will simply trust Christ, that is evangelism. It is also evangelism and proclamation of the good news when we do that with believers, when I meet with you and, and, and I'm struggling and you proclaim to me that my greatest problem has been solved, my greatest debt has been paid, my greatest blessing has been given, you are evangelizing me. You are evangelizing me. You are proclaiming the good news to me. See, there's something kind of wrapped up in this whole thing, and that's excitement. Um, we're all evangelists. We're all evangelists. I, we're just, I don't know what you're, we're all evangelists for different things, right? I don't know, maybe yours is essential oils, right? Maybe it's your, maybe it's your, your favorite sports team, uh, maybe the blues, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's your political candidate. I don't know, but here's the thing. I can tell you this, you can't shut up about what you're excited about. You can't. 
You'll post about it. You'll repost about it. You'll get all excited when you see your friends post about it. You'll talk to your friends about it. You'll talk to people that know nothing about it. You'll talk to people that know everything about it. Why? Because it's good news. And you're really excited about it, and you want to share the excitement. There's an implication in this command that the good news of the resurrection of Christ will so grip our hearts, we won't be able to shut up about it. We will, it will bleed out of us. It won't be an issue of discipline. It will, be, it will be an expression of excitement. Christ has been raised from the dead. And because He has been raised, I have hope. All of creation is being recreated. We will make disciples because we are disciples. We, we will disciple those that are far from God to become believers. We will disciple those that are near to God to grow in their love and responsiveness to His love because we will be continually evangelizing and pouring out that excitement. One area of mission drift that I think is worth calling out and being careful of, at least so, because in some backgrounds I know some of you have been influenced by this. I, I, have, I was influenced in some ways by this um, in a challenging way. Uh, in some circles, I think there is an unhealthy focus on conversion. And some of you are like, oh, wait, Steve, wait a minute, conversion's important. I'm not saying it's not. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying there's an unhealthy focus on conversion. In other words, the, the goal of, of, they say, the mission of the church is to get as many conversions as possible. Mission drift. Tiny, tiny, tiny degrees off the goal leads to a very, very different place. Matthew 28 doesn't say, um, go therefore and make converts of all the nations. It says make disciples. The language is intentional. And, and, and I know that, that um, there are some that uh, have an unhealthy obsession and I think uh, they get off base. Like I had a guy tell me one time, if you don't know the exact day and probably the exact hour that you became a believer, you're probably not a believer. And you should have that day and that hour written in the front cover of your Bible because that's your spiritual birthday. And if you don't have a spiritual birthday, you have not been born again. And I was like, you're wrong. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Some people do have radical conversions like that, like just sudden, dramatic powerful moments where they go from, from being unbelievers to believers, and it's, it's like, bing, right? And there's, that's awesome. There are other people, honestly, who just wake up one day, and they're like, huh, I guess I'm not getting away from this thing. I believe this stuff. I don't know when I became a believer, but I know today I am. That's my story. I don't know when I became a believer. I don't know when I was converted. I didn't have like this moment of magical prayer or I, somewhere along the line, the Spirit of God, as I was wrestling with these deep truths, awakened within me a responding faith. And there came a moment where my, my will <laughs> acknowledged and recognized what the Lord had already done in my heart, where I was like, I, I need to stop fighting this. Because I believe this stuff, and because I believe this stuff, I am now going to order my entire life around it. Was there a conversion? Absolutely. But the focus, the focus. See, the problem with putting all of your energy into the conversion is that it becomes manipulative. 
It's all about getting people to say the right thing, say the right prayer, walk the right aisle, do this so I can get the numbers and I can count the right things and we can, you know what I'm saying? And there are a lot of people who had conversion experiences that are not disciples of Christ and, and do not have saving faith. That should terrify us, that people can say these conversion prayers but not have saving faith but walk away with the conviction that they are in fact in a saving relationship with their Savior because they've said the right things. Listen, faith is a heart response to truth. Our job is to proclaim the truth and trust the Spirit of God to birth within the soul of the people that we are speaking with a heart response of faith that they will respond in trust to this invitation of love. We are powerless to produce the response. And as soon as we put the focus on conversions, we start taking responsibility for what we can't accomplish. Our job is to be a messenger an ambassador for Christ, somebody who proclaims the good news with faithfulness and joy and excitement, trusting the Spirit of God for the results that come from it. Now, I know some of you are getting really nervous. You're like, Steve, I can't believe you would say evangelism is important. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Evangelism is ridiculously important. There are people in your life right now that are walking in desperation, darkness, suffering, and pain that the gospel of God can deliver them from. And you can deliver the good news to them. You can become the messenger that brings that life-saving message into their life. That's a loving thing to do. Right? I'm not saying it's not important. We need to be continually proclaiming the good news because we need to be continually excited about it. It needs to just bleed out of us in our relationships with believers, in our relationship with unbelievers, in our work, in our social circles. In, in, in all, if, if, if this stuff is true and we truly believe it, how can we not be excited about it? which requires us to continually respond to it. That's really what it comes down to. I'm not telling you to go be a cheerleader for Jesus and generate a bunch of false excitement. I'm saying keep responding to the love of God because when you respond to the love of God, you'll be excited about the love of God. It'll soften your heart. It'll, it'll awaken your affection for others. It will change your demeanor. It will empower you. But listen, the mission of the church isn't conversions. It's discipleship. Small difference, big result. So we are to make disciples. He says, go and make disciples, really, as you are going, right? As you are living your life, as you are making all of these crazy choices about what you're going to do next and where you're going to do it and who you're going to do it with, as you are going and just making the daily decisions of life, make disciples. So what is the heart of making a disciple? What does that mean? Well, he tells us, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, right? And that includes believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's a command, right? The gospel itself is a command that is a call uh, to respond, right? So, so you're teaching them, right, to, to, to obey all that I have commanded you. And, and some of us get a little hung up on this all that I have commanded you thing. It's like, is there a crib sheet, right? Do we have it listed out somewhere, all the things Jesus commanded? Because I'm responsible to teach you all the things Jesus commanded, right? And I'm, I'm not even sure where I find them all. Like, do I have to just like take a fine-tooth comb through the Gospels and, and find it all and go through the Old Testament and, and the rest of it? Um, so we get a little hung up as Westerners 
uh, in, in being very, very precise with our language. And, and that's not a bad thing, but we need to be careful because not every culture is as precise as we are. Right? Some people get totally freaked out when, it, when um, Jesus was crucified on a Friday and he rose on Sunday morning. And, and, um, and Jesus said, on the third day I will rise. And they're like, that's not three days. Three days means three literal 24-hour days. So Jesus must have been crucified on a Thursday because that's the only way you can actually get three 24-hour days. Okay, that's like, you guys, not every culture uses language with the same level of ridiculous precision that we do. Remember that, that when those words were spoken, they didn't even own watches, right? The best they could do was a sundial. The precision, like we are just obsessed with precision. So when he says, I want you to obey all the commandments I have spoken, I don't think his focus is on every minute word as much as on get it right. Make sure you get it right. Make sure you get the most important things as most important. In other words, teach the foundation, right? I've been given all authority. I want you to reach all nations. I want you to teach them all that I've commanded, right? These rhetorical flourishes lead to this idea that there is a holistic change that comes from following Christ. What is the root of that change? It's not a list of commands. It's love. Jesus made this clear. Um, Let me put this up on the screen behind me. Jesus gave one command that is the foundation for all the others. It's found in Matthew 22, uh, 37 through 40. He says this, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord God. And so him here, let me give you the background. He's being challenged by a religious scribe. He's, they're trying to trap him. And the question was, what's the greatest command? Right? And, and, and they're trying to get Jesus to, 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 to make some technical errors that will ultimately allow them to divide his following. Because at this point, there are too many people following him and they see him as a threat. Uh, and so they're trying to trap him, but this, his answer is what's important. The, the question came from ill intent, but the answer was given it with profound truth, right? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first command. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments depend all, all the law and the prophets. What's the greatest command? Love God. Love others. And on this command, everything else depends, right? On these two commandments, he says, depend all the law and the prophets. This is the foundation that everything else is built on. This is the first and foremost command out of which every other command came. If you get the foundation right you'll get to the other commandments. If you get the foundation wrong, you haven't even started. If you don't start here, you haven't even started. Moral behavior, religious reformation, personal development, none of it matters if it is not founded on love. Love is the foundation of everything else. This became a revolutionary thought in the early church. Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, describes this 
as the law of Christ. Right? Bear with one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. James, in uh, James chapter 2, calls it the royal law. He's talking about, he's talking about the, the challenge of, of making sure that your works match your faith, right? And, and if you have somebody who is needy and, and um, is hungry and without clothing, you just show up and say, be warm and be filled. You just show up and say, here's some words of life, but I'm not going to do anything to actually protect your life. Like your faith is dead. That is not obeying, he says, the royal law. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The royal law. There he's talking about the law of the king, right? The law of authority. Jesus gave a royal law. In Romans 13, Paul summarizes all of these commandments. Do not covet. Do not steal. Do not lie. And he says, and whatever other commandment there is. I love that. Any other commandment you could think of that comes from the Word of God. He says it's all fulfilled in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love God, if that's your foundation, and if you truly love your neighbor as you love yourself as a result of that love, you're not going to steal. You're not going to lie. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to cheat on your IRS tax forms. You're, you're, you're not going to, because your love for God will lead you to obey God and submit to God. Because love always does, right? When you love your friend, you submit yourself to your friend. You, you obviously want something out of the relationship, but, but every relationship requires a certain level of submission for it to work. You have to submit yourself to their good, and you want to because you love them and you want to see them flourish. We, we see this in marriage. We see this in parenting. All love requires submission. And if we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our minds, and all of our wills, it will become our joy to submit. We will become, because we will recognize that, that, that not only is His joy our joy, that He is glorified when we live for His glory instead of our good, but we recognize that His every, His every intention, His every rule, His every, His every, everything the way He's designed the universe is actually designed to lead us to the fullness of life, not a way. To give us the, the beautiful outpouring of His goodness, not keep us from it. Love leads to submission, and as a result, Paul says... If you obey this one command, love your neighbors, you love yourself, you don't need any other commands. Every other command is simply commentary, explaining the one true command. It's just application. If you don't start here, you haven't started. Now, I want you to catch this. Paul doesn't say that you don't need to obey other laws because all you have to do is love. Right? That's kind of a modern adaptation. Well, as long as I have affection in my heart, I can do whatever I want. I'm not hurting anybody. Well, that's a, that's a simple way of saying, as long as I don't hurt you, I can live for me. The only person I really need to submit to is me, as long as it's not defrauding you. And of course, anytime we are not living in submission to God, we're defrauding God of His glory. Anytime we're aligning our lives in such a way that, that, that is leading us away from the way He designed life, we are, we are walking out of submission and in rebellion and in competition with God. Love leads us to submit. So what he says is if you actually love God and you love others, you won't steal, commit adultery or lie or slander because 
Love fulfills the law. It's the foundation of law. On this, everything else depends. So it isn't that love replaces the law, it's that it's the foundation of it. And this is really critical as we think about mission alignment in our lives. Obedience that doesn't flow from love is not obedience. Religious performance that does not flow from love for God and love for others is self-improvement, not obedience. If we don't start here, we haven't started. There can be no true obedience without love. And love will lead you to true obedience. So, the mission of the church is love. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is love, right? To grow in our experience of God's love, to have our, our pride um, rebuked and undone, to have our, our sin exposed so that we can repent and change, our, our hope in, in the glory of God restored. And the way this all works, y'all, is so beautiful. The Apostle John tells us that we love him because he first loved us. Your love for God isn't something you manufacture for God. Your love for God isn't like an act of your willpower for God. Your love for God is not simply, okay, I'm going to do this for God. Your love for God is a response for God's love to you. We love him because he first loved us. He initiated toward us in love. And and when we receive that love, it awakens within us the ability to respond in love. God not only gives the commandment, he then gives the power to obey the commandment. God not only tells us the most important thing to do, He then equips us to do it by loving us. And in response to that love, we are humbled and we are freed to actually obey and become what He has commanded us to be. For God and for those that He created in His own image, love. That's the mission of the church. We are called to love believers and unbelievers. We are called to love Republicans and Democrats. We are called to love abusers and those that are abused. We are called to love North Americans and Central Americans. We are called to love the homeless and the educated. We are called to love those that are born to privilege and wealth and those that are born to generational poverty. We are called to love the unborn children who need our protection and the born children that are living without hope. Love. Receiving the love of God in Christ, being transformed by the love of God in Christ, and then moving out and sharing the love of God in Christ. Evangelizing everyone. Sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished to each other, to those that are not yet Christ followers. Listen, the mission of the church is not evangelism versus social justice. It's love. And love leads you to both. It is not church planting versus overseas mission. It's love and love leads you to both. It is not teaching the Bible versus taking care of the needy. It's love, and love leads you to both. Because the mission of the church is to be disciples, 
who make disciples. You know, it's interesting. Jesus said there's one hallmark thing that will let you know where my disciples are. One thing that will let you know where my disciples are gathered. One thing that the world will see and they will know you are my disciples. And it's not the cross on top of the steeple. And it's not the Joy FM bumper sticker. And, and, and it's not, you know, uh, you're wearing your Sunday best on Sunday morning. And, and, and it's not, what is it? Y'all know? Yeah. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you do not start here, you haven't started. The mission of the church is rooted in love. Listen, love is the motivation. Love is the goal. And love is the power for the mission of the church. So one last persistent misunderstanding that I want to expose, and that is that mission is something that I'm supposed to do alone. We often think of mission as something that is my obligation. I'm a follower of Christ, therefore I am obligated to be on mission for Christ. And there is an element of truth to that, no doubt, right? But, but, but it is not primarily you. It is primarily we. The Great Commission, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, you can't tell because this is one area where, where English is a little bit flawed. It's plural. You can't see it in the English because we don't have any way of showing number in that, in that construct, right? So a much better way of doing it, I'll fix English for you, is y'all go and make disciples. There, it's fixed. That's good English, okay? Y'all go. See, he's looking at the disciples, and he's not saying each one of you individually go. He's saying you as a community go beyond mission. As you move out as a community, be on mission together. Now, I want to make it clear, you are responsible for yourself. There is an element in which the mission of the gospel is, is for you individually, right? You have to fight to grow as a disciple. You, you have to struggle with your own internal sin. You have to, to fight your own uh, tendency to grow cold to the gospel. You, you have to fight your own tendency to be selfish and not want to push out on the generosity of the love of the gospel, right? Th- those are things that are internal. But, but here's the thing, those struggles were never meant to be had alone, And if you're fighting those struggles on your own, you will fail because the mission of the gospel is not given to you to work out and experience on your own. You're to work it out and experience it in community. When you share the gospel with your neighbor, that's you on mission, just sharing the excitement of Christ risen, right? But but what are you doing? You're inviting them in to a community on mission, and you're working from a community on mission. If you're not rooted in a community on mission, you won't stay on mission because I need you to evangelize me and I need to evangelize you. We need to be continually speaking words of life into each other's hearts that we continue to stay responsive to the love of God and moving out with the generosity of the love of God. This weight wasn't given to you to bear alone. When Jesus said, take up your cross and bear it daily. 
The weight of that cross will, cross will crush you if you're not doing it with others who also love that cross. You are called to the generosity of the gospel together. We are better together. Evangelism, that's one of the weird things that has happened in the modern church. We're, we've turned it into focus on conversion and individual conversations. Evangelism is best done in the context of the community of faith. We invite people in so that they can hear the gospel and see the gospel at work in our lives and in our relationships and in our communities. Listen, the Bible does not talk about community and mission as if they were two different things. We are to be a community on mission. Those are not two separate activities or two separate things. The mission was entrusted to the church collectively. In the same way that the, the distinction between evangelism and discipleship is somewhat artificial. I'm not saying this, there aren't linguistic differences, but, but the huge divide we've created is, is, is artificial between those two things. The distinction between community and mission creates an unbiblical gap between the two experiences. There's no concept in the New Testament of mission outside of the community of the church. The heart of mission is love. And love requires community. It requires others. So to close out, I want to highlight one way that we can be on mission together as a community. There's a lot of ways we encourage Trailhead to be on mission. Um, and over the coming year, we're actually going to be focusing on, on some key ways. Um, a lot of 2020 is actually going to be focused on our partnership in, uh, in Honduras. In Tegucigalpa, in Honduras, uh, there's an organization called WGO. Uh, a group of 17 of us went down there last year. Some of you probably remember that. Um, and, and we did a medical mission in, in Tegucigalpa. They have Rancho Ebenezer, which is a, a, a long-term family-oriented housing for street kids, absolutely transforming kids' lives. I'm going to tell you a lot more about Tegucigalpa. I'm going to tell you a lot more about WGO and, and about Rancho Ebenezer in the coming months. But for this morning, I want to focus on a different partnership. I want to focus on our partnership with the Restore Network. The Restore Network is uh, a, a mission organization that works with the foster care system. It began in Madison County, um, and it's now spread. They began with three counties in 2020. Their plan is to expand to five. And the goal is to create a network of, of equipped homes where kids in foster care can be placed so they can be in, in healthy environments um, so that no child... That's the goal, that no child would be going to bed wondering two critical questions, am I safe and am I loved? In 2009, um, Emmanuel Free Methodist Church in Alton decided as a community to get involved in foster care. They were studying and they discovered that, that care for um, the oppressed and the poor is mentioned over 2,100 times in the Bible. So they started asking the question, what are we practically doing to engage 
in issues of suffering, right? James tells us this is true and undefiled religion, right? To care for the orphan and the widow in their distress, right? So what are we doing to, to engage the reality of this mission? And so what they did is, is they actually um, had 11 families volunteer to take in kids and the rest of the community committed to coming around those 11 families and caring for them as they bore the weight of moving into foster care relationships. They ended up developing a relationship with DCFS in their, um, in their region, in their area, and, uh, and they ended up recruiting more families from other churches and getting other churches involved, and they started creating more complex systems to support those families. And then in 2014, DCFS actually approached the church and asked them to do more. The foster care system in Illinois is in a crisis. There are more kids in need of care than homes to give them care. And these systems were designed, these foster care systems were designed to protect kids at their most vulnerable that they might not be further damaged. But because these systems are so under-resourced and the demand is so great, often the damage is increased by inappropriate or unhealthy foster care systems. Restore wanted to step into that gap, train people to know how to actually, in a healthy way, um, engage this problem and then create support networks around them. Pretty amazing when the state comes to the church and says, we need help. We see you doing it and you're doing it way better than we can. Will you please help us? That sure sounds like it the way it's supposed to be. So they did. They started expanding. In 2014, they decided to get more organized. Emmanuel reached out and partnered with a number of other local churches, and they ended up forming the Restore Network out of that. Give you a little glimpse of how this has grown over the last several years. In 2017, they had 120, 112 Restore families taking children, and there were 151 kids served. In 2018, there were 234 families and 321 kids were served. In 2019, there were 330 families, 472 kids were served. Now, just to give you a scope of, of how great this challenge is, in 2019, there were about 6,600 kids in need of foster care. The system is so overloaded. It used to be that the older kids were the most difficult to place, but in 2019, they had infants. They could not place because there simply were not enough homes. This is a problem the church can solve. This is a gap the church can step into. No one individual church can do that, but a growing network of churches that are like-minded, that are committed to stepping in and serving and helping, which is what Restore is doing. Restore's purpose is to continue to see county by county their structures replicated. In 2019, um, 27 families were restored. That is the goal of foster care, to see the families, the parents become healthy enough that they can care for their children and those children can be restored to safe and secure relationships with their parents. That is absolute best for the parents and it is absolute best for the kids. 27 families were restored. Sometimes that isn't possible. In 2019, 48 adoptions took place. 
32 partner churches were working together, and over 3,000 volunteer hours were logged in the service of these children. In 2017 through 2019, they had expanded from Madison County to include two other counties, so three, and in 2020, they're spreading to five. Listen, when children are hurting, love compels us to respond. You know, talk about the mission of the church. And not just with pity. When there's injustice, love makes it our responsibility to act. The foster care system in Illinois is broken. There are good people, but the system is overwhelmed. Too many kids, too little resources. And it's designed to protect children, but unfortunately can harm them further. And Restore believes this is a problem that we can fix. That the church can be the answer to loving these kids, creating safe spaces for these kids, and coming along families and helping them move toward healing. But it requires all of us. There are some people that were open home. There's some of you who have opened your home. You have foster kids. You have already created space for that to happen. Some of you, for logistical reasons or all kinds of other reasons, can't open your home. But there are so many other ways to be involved. It's not just about those who open their homes. It's about those who come around those who have opened their homes and provide resources and encouragement, support, everything from practical things like like car seats and bedding to, to prayer support and encouragement. It takes a community to be on mission. And so Restore is looking to recruit new families and new churches. Some families that will be foster care parents, some families that will be support families, some families that will be prayer covering, some families that will get involved in the trauma equipping portion. Um, we, have, we have some leaders here at Trailhead, Brian and Maggie Pop, they are just phenomenal. Uh, they have been in many ways leading our community in this way. They do a, a training called Empowered to Connect, which is all about um, connecting with, disciplining, and, and loving kids who have trauma in their background. Um, phenomenal stuff. Um, Brian um, is the chair of the uh, Restore Network on the board and um, has been talking to me about it for years and then actively kind of coming after me for a little while. Um, and, and as a result of praying and really just informing myself and getting more involved, um, I did choose to join the board, and so I'm on the board, um, but Brian and Maggie, man, they're, they're the leaders. They've got, they're just leading out with this thing, and so maybe it's supporting them in their, in their, um, in their classes. Um, here's the thing, Restore. They're looking to recruit new families, equip them with trauma-informed training, unite with local agencies, so that when the needs arise, the local agencies think first of Restore Families, and that's already happening. Local agencies are jealous for more Restore Families and Homes because we are the healthiest environment they have to work with. They want to embrace whole community um, that launches into action, not just, not just isolated caretakers, but people that are going to provide meals, clothes, beds, car seats, advocacy, prayers, the whole, the whole thing. Let me show you this video. And then I have a, a concluding thought, and then we'll wrap up. 
I have not given one back yet. I have heard how hard it will be. People tell me you cry the day you find out they're leaving, and you cry the day they leave. Then you start all over again, fall in love again, say goodbye again. <sighs> this is foster care. We got the call on a Wednesday. We were at church. We got their brief story, their ages, the reason they were coming into foster care. And then the question, can you take them? We stepped in faith and said yes. She would come to us that night scared, anxious, and confused. We opened the door and she came in clinging to the caseworker, a woman she had just met, but suddenly was the only familiar person in the room. He came to us the next morning straight from the hospital, scared, confused, and in pain. He came right to me, placed his head on my shoulder, and that is where he stayed for several days. My back and arms hurt every night from the burden of carrying his weight and the stress of trying to figure out these kids that I didn't even know. Why won't they sleep? What will they eat? Why is she afraid of everything? And many, many more questions. But that was then. Now they are just two of our kids. We know what they like to eat and they sleep through the night. We kiss them and cuddle them, read to them, play with them, worry about them, and pray for them. Become impatient and frustrated with them. They're functionally our children in every sense of the word. Biologically, legally, they aren't our children at all. Chances are one day a worker, just like the one who brought them into our home, will pick them up just a little more whole and take them away from us forever. It will be the single greatest sacrifice of our lives. Oh, how my God knows about giving up a child. My God knows about sacrificial love and so it is his sacrificial love that ultimately compels me. I cannot save any child who comes into my home I am no savior, but I have been rescued by the savior, transformed by the savior, and now compelled to live like the savior. So I care for the children who have entered our lives in need of a temporary home, temporary mom and dad, and temporary siblings. I pray for their little bodies, their hearts, and their futures. I pray that their mom and dad will change by coming to know the love of Jesus themselves. And I pray for my own heart, that I will love these kids like my own while they're in my house. That I will be able to give them back when it comes to that. And that I will have a heart to love and rescue children like my Savior loved and rescued me. So I want to give you an invitation. Um, next month, February 22nd, 6 p.m. at Edwardsville High School, 
Restore is going to be having their biggest fundraiser of the year. It's a dinner. Uh, it'll be just in the commons area. It's pretty, uh, in some ways, low-key. They don't do super fancy. Um, it's high content, low impressive. <laughs> the goal is not to wine and dine. The goal is to put in front of you stories and experiences and let you see what the ministry is doing and how you can be involved and how you can contribute. Um, the dinner is completely underwrited by um, some commercial uh, partners, and so it's a free dinner. And, uh, and really all we're doing is inviting you to join us um, for the purpose of, of hearing about it and hopefully becoming more engaged with it. Now, just so you know, it is a fundraising dinner, so there will be ask. Um, there will be no obligation on your part to give, and nobody's going to shame you, and probably I don't even know if they'll even notice the way they do it. It's not, no, it's not going to be highlighted, but just so you know that that is part of the evening. This is the biggest single source of fundraising specifically for Madison County. Each county does, does their own, but it will be a phenomenal way to get a glimpse of what's happening in this ministry. I know Brian and Maggie are putting together a table um, and, uh, and it's free for you to join. And if you would like to join us, I would love to, I mean, I would love it if we could fill two tables, but um, if you would like to join us in um, learning more, exposing more, um, becoming more involved as we grow more involved, I want to invite you to that. You can find out more information at Connection Point. You can contact Brian Pop or myself directly. You can put in a comment on your response card if you want more information. And we will follow up with you to make sure that you get uh, all the details of the when and the where and, and all of that. Um, yeah. But let's keep walking together in Christ as community on mission. Let me close this in word of prayer. Father, I thank you that this mission you've entrusted to us is in fact the mission that flows from your very heart. It is our mission because it is your mission. You are love. It is your very essence. And out of love, you sacrifice to redeem and to restore, to give grace. Would you awaken within us, Lord, a responding love to yours that would undo our pride, that would relax our greed, that would embolden our fear, that would allow us and equip us to love, knowing, Lord, that it is in pushing in to the generosity of love that we increase our own capacity to experience the joy of love. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion together in a moment.